0: Uh, this morning we are back in 1 Corinthians, and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're finishing up chapter 6, looking at verses 19 and 20 this morning. Now we live in a highly oversexed culture. Uh, we, we see it everywhere we go. If you turn on the TV, uh, you'll be hard-pressed to find any show on TV today that doesn't show some kind of a sexual sin, some kind of a sexual perversion But as much as society loves to celebrate sexual sin and sexual immorality, as citizens of God's kingdom, we are not called to celebrate sexual sin, but we're called to be countercultural, to live countercultural from the rest of the world. As the world celebrates sin, we're called to flee sexual sin and glorify God with our, our bodies. And so we see that today in our text As we finish out chapter 6 Flee sexual sin and seek to glorify God through sexual purity At this point in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 12 through 20 As a whole uh, makes this very point to us Paul is dealing with some of the same sexual sins That we deal with today that we see in our culture today uh, last week, he began to address sexual sin and he gave us this command to flee sexual sin. But as we, we look at that, he continues. He doesn't just stop there. We stopped there last week because we had to, had to we kind of ran out of time. But uh, he didn't stop there. He continues on and he gives the flip side of that. You see, we're called to flee sexual sin. We're also called to glorify God through sexual purity. And that's what we see as we finish out this passage today in these last two verses. We are to glorify God through sexual purity. And so today we're going to see two reasons why we need to glorify God through sexual purity as we finish out uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So hopefully as we, we look at this, we will all be convinced to flee sexual sin and to glorify God through sexual purity in our lives. So if you will, read with me there in 1 Corinthians. and I'm going to read the whole uh, paragraph again so that we can get the whole picture and see Paul continuing this argument to glorify God through sexual purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but... Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord, of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God, In your body. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of His holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may He write its eternal truth on all our hearts. As we begin to look at this passage and finish up this passage this morning, first, the first reason to glorify God through sexual purity is a profound one. It's absolutely profound. You are to glorify God through sexual purity because your body is a temple of God. Your body, dear Christian, is a temple of God. We live at a a peculiar time, a unique time in redemption history. We think back at, at God's dealing with man and how God has interacted with man throughout history. We go all the way back to creation, When God first created man and Adam and Eve, they were there in the garden. And God dwelt with man in the garden. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, Genesis tells us. He was there with them. He interacted with them. There was no guilt. There was no shame. And so God was able to dwell with with mankind there in the garden and interact with them. But then sin came into the world and death through sin, right? Sin came into the world and so Adam and Eve died to God. Their relationship to God was severed. They were were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were kicked out of the presence of the Lord. And so God no longer dwelt with Adam and Eve. He no longer dwelt with man. Man was dead to God, spiritually dead, relationally dead to God. Now, as we continue on through the Old Testament, you see God did interact with men from time to time. He would come to them through visions and dreams. He walked with a few men on occasion, and we even see him talking to Abraham and going and visiting Abraham, but he didn't dwell with them. He did not dwell with man. He he visited from time to time. He spoke to man from time to time through visions and dreams, but he didn't dwell with man. But then you go on over to Exodus. And in the Exodus, God brought uh, Israel, his people Israel, out of bondage to Egypt, and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with his people. And in that, during all that process, He, he gave a command to his people to build a tabernacle, a tabernacle so that God could come again and dwell with his people, Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 and 46 says, I will, do, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so God had them build this tabernacle and they built it. And as Moses consecrated the tabernacle, as he purified it through sacrifices, God's spirit came down and dwelt in the the tabernacle. It says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so much so that all the priests, Moses and all the priests were ran out of the tabernacle. They couldn't stay there because of the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. And God was there and he dwelt among his people. And he continued to dwell among his people, even as they come into the promised land. And later on, as Solomon, King Solomon comes into power, he allows King Solomon to build a temple that would replace the tabernacle. And again, when Solomon came in and he consecrated the temple, the glory of the Lord came down and filled the temple so that people couldn't, couldn't stay in the temple. The priests couldn't stay in the temple. They were ran out because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And God's glory remained with His people, and He dwelt among them. But as history continued on, Israel began to sin against God and rebel against His, his rulership, His leadership in the, in the land, in the nation. They began to chase after other gods. And so God left His people. He departed from His people. He allowed the Babylonians to come in and to conquer Jerusalem, the holy city, And bring it to rubble. He allowed uh, the Babylonians to completely destroy the temple. Solomon's temple, with all of its glory and all of its beauty, was made rubble. Because the people of Israel disobeyed God. God left his people. He departed from the the people of Israel. Now, later on, after the exile, uh, the people of Israel were were brought back. They began to come back under the Medo-Persian Empire. It began to come back, and and at that time, they built a new temple. Not as wonderful and as as splendorous as Solomon's temple, but it was another temple for them to worship God. You know something that uh, after they built that new temple, God's glory never returned. It did not return, not like it did for the tabernacle, not like it did for Solomon's temple. God's glory did not return to Israel. That is, His glory did not return until The incarnation you see in the incarnation, which we are here in and Palm Sunday celebrating Palm Sunday and looking at Passion Week ahead of us. And we're reminded of the incarnation that the Lord uh, Lord God sent his son, his only son, Jesus Christ to come take on human flesh and dwell among his people once again. I'm reminded of John chapter one. Just want to read that for you this morning. John chapter one kind of demonstrates this for us very well. John chapter one, starting in verse one, says in the beginning was the word. Now, the word there is Jesus. The word is the, the full revelation of God. We, we have in this word, the Bible, we have the revelation of God. Well, John's making this point clear to us that in Jesus, the word of God, this is the full revelation of God. This is God in human flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Right. Go back to Genesis. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, he created the heavens and the earth. And John takes up that same point in the beginning, the word and the word created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was God. He wasn't some angel. He wasn't some other created being. He was and is God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. That is everything that was made was made through him. He's not a created being because all things, every single thing was made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and then and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skipping down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. God became flesh. And there we get, see again, he dwelt among us. He dwelt among his people and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So. Jesus Christ, God's only son, who was God and is God. He was in the beginning with God. When everything was created, he was there. Everything was created through him. Another passage of scripture says it was created for him. He was the word. He is the word. He is God. And God came and dwelt among his people once again, taking on flesh and dwelling among his people but of course we know as this as passion week went on christ would go to calvary's cross where he would die he would suffer and die for our sins he would suffer and die in our place so that we might be forgiven he took on the debt that we owed. he paid it in full and he died on calvary's cross He was crucified, dead and buried. And then three days later, as we'll celebrate next week, he was raised again. And eventually he uh, he he spent some time with his disciples after that. But eventually he was he was taken up into heaven. He was raised up into heaven. But that doesn't mean that God's uh, God departed from his people. No, because Jesus Christ, he's told us of a promise. He made us a promise while he was walking with his disciples, while he was here on earth. He made us a promise that God would continue to dwell with us. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the Lord, uh, excuse me whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. Talking to his disciples, he dwells with you. He was with them, directing them, guiding them, helping them in their ministry as they walk with the Lord. He was with them and will be in you and will be in you. Man, that's profound. Jesus is actually saying that the, the Holy Spirit, who was with them, giving them guidance, empowering their ministry as they went out in the name of Jesus and, and conducted gospel ministry in their time, the Holy Spirit was with them, but now, now the Holy Spirit's going to dwell in them. He's going to dwell in them. He's not going to be outside. Giving direction, He's going to be inside giving direction. He's going to be inside changing lives. He's going to be inside transforming lives. The Holy Spirit would be in them, dwell in them, in us, His disciples. And then that promise was fulfilled after uh, Jesus ascended into heaven. There on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down to dwell in. God's people, Acts chapter two, verses one through four. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. That's all the disciples. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house with where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Lord God came down from heaven and began to feel his followers to be in them, to dwell in them. And we see that throughout the rest of the, 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 story, the book of Acts. Every time that the disciples go to Samaria, Judea, Samaria and into the ends of the earth as they they go out and they take the gospel to other nations, other peoples, other uh, other uh, other people with other tongues. Right. Uh, They go out. And as they begin to proclaim the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and fills all of those new believers. And so it is for us today, dear Christian. We, When we trust in Jesus Christ, when we commit our lives to him, the Holy Spirit moves in us. He dwells within us. And that's what Paul is saying there. Or do you not know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The Holy Spirit dwells within us. He lives in us. Dear Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. You are a temple of God. You are a temple of God. Now, we've been out of our sanctuary for some time now, even before the crisis hit and we had to to stay at home. Uh, We were down in the Family Life Center because we were having some renovations done in our sanctuary. Now, we love our sanctuary and and many people think of the sanctuary as a holy place, right? A, A place to be revered. But you know what? The sanctuary is really just a building, it's just a building. Uh, We had to renovate it because buildings do what buildings do. They get old, they start to to show age, the the paint gets cracked and ceilings start to to mess up and and you have to go in and make repairs. And that sanctuary, we had to make some repairs because it's just a building. And one day that building will fade away. One day that building, this building that we're in right now, all of this one day will not be here. Sometime during, in the future, probably after all, we, all of us here are gone, but sometime in the future, this building will be empty. It will be, uh, old and, and unusable and, and somebody have to come through here and bulldoze it over and put something else in its place. One day, this building will no longer be here. That sanctuary will no longer be here. It's just a building. You know what makes the, the sanctuary so special? You know what makes the the sanctuary a place of reverence and awe? It's not the stained glass windows. It's not all the beautiful furnishings, though it has that. What makes the sanctuary so special, what makes the sanctuary so holy, is all the little temples who come and gather together to worship in the sanctuary. That's what makes the sanctuary special. It's a building. But what makes it holy are all the little temples who come in week after week and join together in holy worship to a holy God, singing praises to his name. Dear Christian, you are a temple of God, a holy temple of God. He indwells you. He lives in you. Man, that's special. That's absolutely special. What a wonderful time in history. What a wonderful time to be a follower of God that he can come and dwell in us. Your body, dear Christian, is a holy temple. Therefore, do not defile your body with sexual sin. Flee sexual sin and live in holiness. Give glory to God through your body, keeping your body pure and holy unto him. Glorify God through sexual purity. So glorify God through sexual purity because your body is a temple of God. Second, glorify God through sexual purity because your body has been bought with a price. Your body has been bought with a price. As Paul continues on there, he makes this absolutely clear. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. That is that Christ redeemed you. Christ redeemed you. He bought you. That word redemption, it has an economic connotation. You have a debt to be paid and you have to go and redeem it. You go out here and you go to the hardware store and you charge some things to them to fix your house. You make that bill, you have a debt. And so uh, they want you to come redeem that debt. They want you to come pay for that debt. We had a debt that we could not pay. We had a debt hanging over our heads and Christ came and he redeemed us. He bought us by the precious blood of his, by his precious blood. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11, 12 says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then though the greater uh, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by by means of blood not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption Now in the ancient world if you incurred a debt that you could not pay, uh, well, there were a few options. The person that you owed that debt to, they could either, either have you thrown into debtor's prison uh, where you could just go there and rot. Or uh, oftentimes they, you could opt to be sold into slavery. And so you could be sold into slavery and either be a slave to the person to whom you owed that debt to until you finally worked off that debt. Or uh, from time to time, they would take that person and sell him into slavery to someone else to kind of uh, redeem some of the the debt that was owed them. And so the only hope for a person who owes such a great debt to someone was that someone would come and show them mercy and redeem them. That a loved one, perhaps a family member, would come and be a a redeemer and buy off their debt, pay off their debt so that they could be freed from slavery. And we see that same kind of imagery here. When God talks about Jesus Christ coming to redeem us. Dear Christian, we were sold under sin. We had a debt that we could not pay. We had a debt hanging over us, and the debt is death. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came and he redeemed us. He bought us. When he went to Calvary's cross, he paid the debt in our place. He redeemed us. He bought us with a price. We were a slave to sin. But Jesus Christ redeemed us from that sin. Therefore, dear Christian, now you belong to Christ. You belong to him. You are his possession, his prized possession. You are his. You are a slave to Christ, scripture tells us. When we come to faith in Christ, we become a slave to him. Now, you say, some of, someone might say, well, well what's, the, what's so good about that? We were slaves to sin, and now we're slaves to Christ. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. You see, sin, being a slave to sin, sin's yoke is heavy, and its burden is hard. Its burden is hard, and it's heavy, and it weighs us down, and it leads us down to destruction. For the wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. The burden of sin brings us into hell. It drags us down into hell. I like the words of this old song. Sin will take you further than you want to go, leave you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's where sin leads you. But you see, when you come to Jesus Christ... And you become a slave of of Christ. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, what we find out, dear Christian, is that when we come to faith in Jesus, when we become a slave to Christ, what we experience is true freedom. You see, sin weighs us down. It keeps us down. But in Christ, becoming a slave to Christ, we experience freedom because we get to live for what God created us to live for to love Him and serve Him and enjoy Him forever. And out of the goodness of God, there comes the manifold blessings, so many multiple blessings that just outflow from God to those who love Him and serve Him. So to become a slave of Christ is a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. In Christ, we find true freedom to be who God has created us to be. So we are slaves to Christ. We are slaves to him. He owns us. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Oh, dear Christian, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He lived and died for you. Therefore, do not defile your temple. Do not defile your body. He bought your body. He didn't just buy your spirit. He didn't just buy your soul. He bought you complete body and soul. You belong to Him. He bought your whole being. Glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body because Christ paid for you. Glorify God with your body through sexual purity. Now maybe today... Dear Christian, you you are struggling with sexual sin. Maybe you're struggling with temptation. Maybe you're actually living in sexual sin. I want you to know that you are a holy temple unto God. Your body has been bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, turn away from that sin. Turn away from that temptation. Turn away from that sin and turn to Christ. You see, you can't overcome the sin. You can't overcome the temptation by yourself. Oh, you need the power of God within you to help you overcome that. And the good news is, is if you trust in Jesus Christ, the power of God lives in you. And He will empower you to overcome that sin. Turn away from the sin. Flee sexual sin. And turn to God. Trust in the Holy Spirit's power to help you overcome that sin. And then uh, look around. Find uh, an accountability partner. Find someone who will hold you accountable. Turn to a brother or sister in Christ whom you can trust. Confess your sin to them. Tell them what you're struggling with. Let them help you bear that burden so that they can love you, encourage you, pray for you, and hold you accountable so that you can get away, get free from that temptation or that sin in your life. That's what the church is here for. We're here to to love one another, to build one another up, to encourage one another in good works. Therefore, let's help one another. Let's bear one another's burdens. Turn to someone whom you love, someone whom you could trust, to help you bear that burden and overcome that sin and that temptation. Now maybe you're here or you're the out there and you're a slave to sexual sin because you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. You've never given your life to Him. I want you to know no matter how hard you'll tr- you try, you can't overcome that sin on your own. You need help. You need Jesus. And He can overpower that sin. He can help you overcome that sin if you'll tr- turn to Him and trust in Him. He died for that sin. He gave his life for that sin so that in him you can be forgiven of that sin. And if you trust in him, he will empower you by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come move in you and empower you to overcome that sin. Trust in Jesus today. He will save you and he will give you power over sexual sin so that you might live for him. Trust him today. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you that, oh, Lord, just a wonderful truth, Lord. As we just think about the Holy Spirit indwelling us, you living in us, we are a holy temple unto God. Oh, Lord God, we just ask you to help us live that out to live as temples separated from the world, live as temples, holy, sanctified for your glory. Lord, we just confess to you our shortcomings. Lord, we know that we, if it's up to us, we, we can't be holy. But Lord, you can give us the power you can work it in us. You can change our hearts. You can change our desires. You can give us power to overcome the sin in our lives. So Lord, we just pray that you would help us to do that, each and every one of us. And Lord, I know that there's those out there who, they're, they're a slave to sin. They're slaves to sin. And they think there's, there's no hope. They've been in sla- uh, slavery so long, they think there's no hope. But Lord, you provide every bit of hope If they will only trust in you, Lord, turn their hearts to Christ today. Let them trust in Christ. Let them overcome sin in their life through your saving grace. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.